0: Our scripture reading today is from the book of Ephesians, and I will be reading chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Good morning. So today marks the first of four Advent Sundays and if the word Advent is not familiar to you, it means the time of waiting, the time of joyful expectation as we celebrate the coming of Jesus and its traditional season in the church. Um, so Christmas is here, guys. Who, who loves Christmas? Who has other feelings towards Christmas? A few people, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, C.S. Lewis pointed out that there's actually really three Christmases going on every year. First of all, there's the Christian Christmas, which is a festival, uh, a spiritual festival celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God. Secondly, there's the European cultural Christmas, which is a winter festival of being merry and singing carols and practicing hospitality. And thirdly, there's the commercial Christmas, which is an economic festival designed to keep the retail industry afloat. And the fact that they all happen on the same day is very confusing because they have very little to do with one another, actually. Now, a couple of you raise your hands that you, uh, you may not particularly love Christmas. And um, there's plenty of reasons for you to dislike the Uh, The cultural Christmas and the economic Christmas, but I hope over the next few weeks what we can do is build an atmosphere of joyful expectation as we look forward to the first kind of Christmas. So we're going to focus our attention on not so much the, the story of Christmas, but on what you could call the doctrine of Christmas, the meaning of Christmas. It's what First John tells us so clearly that the word that's the eternal Son of God, the second person in, of the Trinity, the creator and sustainer of the universe. the word became flesh. That means flesh and bone, uh, eating, drinking, toilet-using human being. <laughs> the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. That means he lived in a real place with real people at a real time in history. Now, no matter what I say up here over these next few weeks, there is literally no way for me to exaggerate the significance of those few words. And that's why the the title of this series is Glorious Dirt. (laughs) Christmas is God getting his hands dirty. It's the glorious descending into the dirt so that we that were made of dirt, the dust of the earth, could be glorified in him. So that's our theme this month as we uh, prepare for Christmas in Advent. And today we're going to start by looking at the mystery of Christmas. Where else could you really start? when you start to think about the meaning of what we're celebrating. So I'll give you what my three points are. First of all, what is the mystery? Second of all, what the mystery is not? And third of all, why is it important? So firstly, what is the, me- uh, what is the mystery of Christmas? I have to be honest, when I was preparing this... Uh, I had a really hard time. It was, re- it was more difficult than usual, and I'm, I, I usually find it quite difficult, but um, I felt the Spirit drawing me to this passage in Ephesians, and I knew I wanted to talk on the mystery of the birth of Jesus, but it was really hard to prepare. The, the ideas just weren't forming until about the middle of the night last night. And then I came across a quote from uh, Allison McGrath, one of my old theology uh, tutors. He says, a mystery, speaking theologically, a mystery is something that is so vast, it cannot be grasped by the human mind. So no wonder I was struggling. <laughs> Here's me trying to write a sermon on mystery. I think it's easy to forget, because we, we, we imagine that we're so familiar with Christmas and, and the story and the meaning, it's easy to forget that we're dealing with the most central thing in all of Christian faith. J.I. Packer says, uh, the supreme mystery of Christian faith lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the incarnation. Now, incarnation, again, you may not be familiar with that word. Incarnation comes from the Latin. It means to make flesh or to, to make into a human body. C.S. Lewis called this the grand miracle. He says, God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And so Christmas is far more than a time when we eat turkey and sing nice little songs and give each other little presents. This is the center Of everything that we believe. Everything hangs on this. Without the incarnation, there's no life of Christ. There's no cross. There's no resurrection. There's no salvation. And so this is the time where we get to turn our hearts every year back to what it's all about. Now, you may be thinking, Ephesians is not your typical Christmas text for Uh, a Christmas sermon series. But luckily for me, the incarnation is so important it turns up everywhere. (laughs) So everything in the New Testament is is, uh, somehow linked to the incarnation. But I think what we do get to see here in Ephesians is some of the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation and how we should live as a result. So a little bit about the, the letter to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote this while he was in prison and he wrote it to the churches in and around the area of Ephesus. And that was a city where he'd spent three years as a missionary on, on his third missionary journey. And this letter it was probably meant to be circulated around the churches. It wasn't a personal letter written to a specific congregation. This was written to all the churches. And so what we get, what we get to see in this letter is really... A big picture view of God's plan. It's the zoomed out picture of God's plan of salvation. And it begins with what we read with this almost uncontrollable burst of praise. Verses 3 to 14, in the Greek, it's actually one super long, incredibly dense sentence. And it's what's called a a eulogy from which we get our word eulogy. It's basically a list of all the wonderful things that a person has done. It's it's a a, a song of praise is what a eulogy uh, was and in some ways still is. Um, I think this is one of the most awe-inspiring passages in the whole Bible. If you want to get the the bird's eye view, the God's eye view of the entire plan of salvation, this is probably the best place to look. If you want to see exactly what God is destined for you, who you are, what you have in Christ, what your inheritance is in him, this is the place to look. And the centerpiece of this passage is what Paul refers to as the mystery of God's will. And this idea of mystery is one of the main ideas in this letter to the Ephesians. He touches on it six times in this short letter. And when I read this, I get the sense that I, I kind of picture Paul locked up in prison for months on end. He's, he's really at the end of his rope at this point in his life. If you, if, you, um, if you look into what was going on behind the writing of this letter. But I picture him in prison just having basically all the time in the world, to meditate on what it means to be in Christ. Meditating on this. And as he starts to to write this letter to encourage the church, to to teach them about their identity in Christ, he can't help but just flow out with this praise. He doesn't go into the the normal greetings that he does. He just bursts into worship. Worship. Paul, as you read this, he's absolutely thrilled. And we should be too, when we realize what it's talking about. Uh, in the, the letter to Colossians, which was written right about the same time, it says it also talks about mystery. It says, "This mystery was kept secret for long ages and generations." And you can read that in Romans 16, uh, and that's Colossians 1. Secret for long generations. This season of Advent, it's very significant that it's the season of waiting, the season of expectation. It's a season of pregnancy, that sense of being hopeful for what's coming, but still longing for that day to actually come. And that was obviously true literally, physically, of Mary, but it was true also at a deeper level for God's people because God's people had been waiting expectantly for a very long time. As you read through the scriptures, if you read uh, from Genesis all the way through um, to Revelation, and you start to get a sense of the, the storyline of the Bible. There's one thread of a storyline through the Bible. And as you, as you begin to, to capture that, there's this building sense of tension. There's this dramatic tension that's building bit by bit all through the Psalms, um, all, all through the scriptures. God giving hints and clues and prophecies of what's to come. Promises of what he's going to do. But there's this, this growing expectation as the time gets longer and longer. The centuries pass. And it looks like, at many times, all is lost. God, in, uh, from, from Genesis to Moses to the Psalms through the prophets, he, he promised a coming Messiah, a coming Savior, the anointed one that would free God's people once and for all, from slavery to sin. But how? That was the question. How is he going to do it? Humanity had turned away from God in the garden. That's why the plan had to be set in motion. And so God chose out a special people that would bring about the Messiah. But then even those special people that he chose out turned their, back, their backs on him and started worshiping other gods. And so how could God fulfill both His promised justice for sin, and also his covenant love and mercy for the people that he chose and set apart as holy. How could he fulfill justice and mercy without sacrificing either one? And as scripture moves on, we begin to get intimations that the secret is God is going to have to do it himself. I wish I could take us through, uh, especially the, the prophets, uh, through, uh, through Psalm 23 and, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, how you see this progression that there's a good shepherd coming, coming and bit by bit we, found out, we find out the good shepherd is God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. The answer of how God was going to do it is the word of God. Made flesh, hanging on a cross for us. That is the mystery of Christ. And more than that, Paul says this wasn't just about forgiving Israel's sins, this was God's plan of salvation for all nations. God had promised Abraham that through you, through your seed, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. Jews and Gentiles being made one in the redeemed family of God. This is one of the biggest passions of Paul's life, is helping the church understand, Jews, Gentiles, you are now part of one new family in Christ. There are now no more barriers of culture, of race, of of ethnicity, of language. You are one. In Christ, And it still gets bigger than that. Not only is the mystery about redep- redemption for Jews and Gentiles, but the ultimate mystery, in it, and we read it in this passage, is that through Christ, God is reconciling the whole of the created universe to himself. It says... All things, whether in heaven and on earth, being in Christ, being united in Him, reconciled to God. So, not only your personal sins, not only the the sins of the the nation of Israel, not only um, redemption for the whole of humanity, but redemption for the whole of creation that has also been broken by sin. This is the mystery that has finally, after long ages and generations, been revealed in what God has done in Christ. That's the big picture. It doesn't get any bigger than the whole of the created order. (laughs) That's God's end game. It is so much bigger than just our individual thing. This is about God fixing everything. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. I love those words. This is the big picture. This is Jesus Christ, the embodied word of God at the center of everything. The center of all of history. This is the the pivot. This is the the anchor of all of history. Everything that was before this was a foreshadowing and everything that comes after this uh, is based on it. And what's crazy is God chooses to do it through the the creator of the universe, the the creator and sustainer of all of creation, being born as a helpless, crying, peeing, pooing baby. (laughs) That is inconceivably mysterious. How could God become a baby? How could a baby in fact be God? Jesus, what we're seeing here is Jesus is the place where heaven meets earth. It's in him. In his body all things in heaven and on earth are united. That's uh, that's verse 10 the incarnation is the the secret key to god's big plan this is the grand mystery the grand miracle so that's what the mystery is what is the mystery not well the mystery is the mystery does not mean myth mystery does not mean myth christian faith is fundamentally based on a mystery and so if you were to say that to probably the average person, what they might take away from that is your faith is based on something that you, you don't know, that you can't know. Isn't that, isn't that what a mystery means? If you, if you have a murder mystery, it, you don't know what the solution is. You don't know who the, the killer is, right? And so uh, that would fit very well with this popular misconception that faith means believing something without evidence. So, you might say, can modern people in an age of science really believe in this kind of thing? Christian faith is based on mystery. It's true. But that's not the same as saying that it's unreasonable or that it's unknowable. We're surrounded by all kinds of mysteries. Some of them are sitting right next to you. (laughs) There's any number of things about life and existence that we can't fully comprehend, that we can't wrap our heads around in in a comprehensive way. Just think of the vastness of the universe. Now, we can give the numbers, we can, we can talk about the, the, the planets and the, the size and the light years between everything and, and we can write it down on paper but it's impossible to conceive of. We can understand that it's true but we can't fit it into our heads. We can't, we can't actually conceive of something so vast. And just because we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's unreasonable. And this passage in Ephesians, for instance, um, you, may, you may or may not have noticed, we actually have the doctrine of the Trinity in here. This is one of those things that a lot of people shy away from because, oh, oh I don't understand it, so I'm just not going to think about it. Well, we see the Trinity right here. We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working in eternity for our salvation. If you go back and read it, you'll, you'll, you'll see the work of every person of the Trinity um, on display. And we can, we can read God's revelation of himself in, in nature and, and in, uh, in scripture. We can compile all the facts. We can lay them out and, and come up with a way to make sense of them and what we come to is the Trinity. It's a way of summarizing everything that God says about who he is. Now, because we can express the doctrine of the Trinity, does that mean that we can fully comprehend it? Does that mean that we can fit it into our little brains? No. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's unreasonable. Reason and knowledge support our faith, but they don't encompass our faith. Christian faith, I would argue, is a reasonable rational response to the evidence that we have of God in Christ. It's not, it's not less than rational. It should never be less than rational, but it is more than rational. It does involve things beyond our full comprehension. And if we're talking about God, isn't that exactly what we would expect? Shouldn't there be some things about God that we can't fit into our head? If we could know everything about God, wouldn't we be God? Now, a big problem is that the modern mind, I think, more than ever in history, cannot abide mystery. We just don't like mystery. (laughs) Every murder mystery must have a solution at the end, right? Um, I once asked an agnostic friend of mine, what would it take for you to believe in God? And he said, well, I would need to see some sort of undeniable evidence, some kind of amazing miracle. And if, if I had that, I would believe, but since I haven't, well, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making any statement about the question. Now, that's quite a common thing for people to say, I think. I've heard that quite a lot. We think that if God were... Um, if God revealed himself in some undeniable way that we would believe. But is that really the case? Would we even really want God to reveal himself in an undeniable way? And if you think about it, if you try and actually come up with, well, how could he possibly, what might he do to, to make something undeniable for you? What, what kind of thing could he possibly do? My friend said, well, um, I don't know, God writing my name in the stars. You probably could have thought of a better one if he thought a little longer, but you know, would that be an undeniable revelation of God? Couldn't you, I mean, it'd be pretty amazing, right? But couldn't you, if you, if you didn't really want to know him or believe, couldn't you just as easily write that off to super-intelligent aliens? Or, you know, if you were the only one to see it, couldn't other people just write it off as, oh, you were hallucinating? Would it be seen, you know, if if God chose to do it that way, would would he make everyone on earth see it at the same time so that everyone could have that undeniable proof? Well, uh... What about generations in the future? Would they also, every generation, have this, this chance at undeniable proof, if their names written in the stars? Um, say that every generation had it, every generation had all their names written in the stars personally for them. Wouldn't we just end up treating that and taking it for granted like we do the stars anyway, if it was just always there? And so you begin to see, I mean you can probably come up with a better example, but you begin to see we expect God to give us undeniable proof before we believe, and yet when you try and actually say what could satisfy that criteria, it's very hard to come up with something that would actually do it. And so even if God could do that, even if he gave undeniable proof, what that means is that you would be forced to believe. If something's undeniable, you can't deny it, you're forced to believe. Is that really what we want? Does that even fit with the picture of a loving God? So here's the question I want to propose. Okay, God is love. We know that from from 1 John. Uh, So let's assume God values freedom and choice because without choice, you can't really have genuine love. And so... Think about it this way. Could you think of a way where God could reveal himself adequately to all people, providing enough evidence for those who do want to believe to believe, and it, enough shadow for those who don't want to believe to still retain their freedom to disbelieve? Or you could put it this way How could God reveal himself effectively to all people? while also maintaining their freedom to accept him or reject him. Here's a suggestion. (laughs) What if God in person visited us so that he could be visibly seen, making sure people knew that he was coming in advance by predicting it over a certain amount of centuries, And when he came, doing things that only God could do, like control the weather and forgive sins and raise the dead, including himself, Um, at the same time, also teaching and telling people exactly who he is so they they don't mistake him with any other God, um, And then also, not only teaching, but proving his character by the kind of life that he lives, his compassion, his miracles, a self-sacrificial death, even for his enemies, and then a triumphant resurrection to defeat the grave. That would probably be a good way. (laughs) Those that would want to believe would have plenty of reason. To believe, But those that don't want to believe could just say, oh, well, I don't know if that ever really happened. There would still be freedom to reject. Now, I would argue, that was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but <laughs> I would argue that incarnation, Jesus becoming, the Son of God becoming flesh, is both the fullest possible way of God revealing himself, and it's also the most loving possible way for God to reveal himself. It's the ultimate way of revelation because God doesn't only communicate with us, he becomes us. He enters into our very existence That's why Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The incarnation is definitely a great mystery, but it's not unreasonable for being a mystery. We know that humans can't become God, but whoever said that God couldn't become a human? C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book Miracles, he pointed out that um, we know from lots of areas of life that, that the higher principles can always contain the lower principles. So for instance, uh, a cube, picture a, a Rubik's cube here. You can describe a cube uh, in the lower form of squares. A cube has six squares. And if you have six squares, you can break that down and go lower and describe the squares in terms of straight lines. So every square has four straight lines. But you can never describe a line in terms of squares. The the lower can't go upper. It can't go higher. You can never describe squares in terms of cubes. The lower can't ascend to the higher. Or think about it in terms of adults and children. An adult can... Descend and relate and think and and speak like a child at their level. But a child can't ascend and think and speak and relate like an adult. The way that we can tell the higher from the lower is that the higher can always contain the lower. When you have the higher, you get the lower with it. And in the same way, we can't make the incarnation fit our kind of lower principles. It's a mystery that goes beyond them. But if you go the other way, if you start with the incarnation and head down, all of a sudden, everything in the New Testament fits together. It all makes sense in light of the resurrection. See, Lewis said it, it's, it's like the sun. How do you know that it's, that it's noon and that the sun is shining? It's not because you're looking at the sun. It's because you can see everything else. And if you start with the Incarnation, it allows you to shed so much light on the whole of Scripture. So he says, C.S. Lewis says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature that he's created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. This is the mystery that God finally revealed to the church through Christ. So the last point is, why Why is this so important? Lots of reasons, but you might think, if the incarnation is, is a mystery and... Uh, we're never going to be able to wrap our heads around it, then, then what's the point of really talking about it? Shouldn't we just accept it and just, you know, leave it at that? Um, is it really important for everyday life and faith? And the thing is, if you get the incarnation wrong, you get everything else wrong with it. Uh, Alison McGrath, in his book, Heresy, um, he argues that all the major heresies of the church throughout history find their root... They all trace back to a faulty doctrine of Christ. Almost every heresy goes wrong because it either, it does one of two things. It either ends up denying the full divinity of Jesus Christ or it ends up denying the full humanity of Jesus Christ. And what you see in scripture is that Jesus really is both. Fully man, fully God. That's the only way that we can make sense of what scripture tells us. He really is God the Son. Contrary to what the Mormons say, he did not become God. Rather, it says he is the eternal word that was with God and was God through which everything was made that makes God visible, that upholds the the universe by the word of his power. He does and says things only God can do, and Christians have worshipped him. His followers, his disciples, worshipped him as God right from the beginning, not centuries later as the myth developed, but they worshipped him as God right from the beginning. Jesus is fully God, but yet we also see that he really is fully human. Think about all this. Jesus has a human mother. He's given a human name. He comes from a human tribe. He lived in a human town in a particular nation. He had a job. He celebrated holidays. He ate. He drank. Uh, he, he drank. He slept. He was tempted. He was angry. He was heartbroken. He suffered. He died. That is a picture of humanity. And so the church has always taught that Jesus was truly and fully God and truly and fully human. And if you get rid of either of those, if you start to move away, to, uh, uh, if you start to move away from either of those, as many have tried to do, you end up actually nullifying the gospel. You, you remove its power. Dorothy Sayers, who was a, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis at Oxford, Um, she wrote this, she said, if Christ was God and nothing else, his immortality means nothing to us. If he was man and no more, his death is no more important than yours or mine. But if he really was both God and man, then when the man Jesus died, God died too. And when the God Jesus rose from the dead, man rose too, because they were one and the same person. we're talking about Christmas, Tim Keller points out, Christmas is the only Christian festival. There's plenty of Christian festivals, but Christmas is the only Christian festival that all the world wants to get in on. (laughs) Everyone wants to celebrate Christmas, but the problem is that they want to celebrate the spirit and the principles of Christmas while leaving out the person of Christmas, every religion of the world that's possible to do whether it's Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius or Moses they all came to say here is the way here is the truth here is the the way of life that pleases God and so you can remove the person and the system still stands but in Christianity that doesn't work in every world religion the person Is just the messenger. They were an ends to the mean of the principle, a means to an end of the principles. But with Christ, everything that He said and did and taught was a means to Himself. Did Jesus bring uh, moral teachings? Did He give us new experiences? Did He show us a way of life that pleases God? Yes, of course. But all of those things are pointless if you miss Him. All of those things were avenues, not ends in themselves, they were avenues that we could know him. Without the flesh and blood, real life, real space, time, and history, Jesus Christ born as a baby to the Virgin Mary, without him in the flesh, there is no gospel. Because the gospel's not about Jesus, the gospel is Jesus. Everything is in him. And if you read this passage again, you, you see how many times this, this little phrase, in him, pops up. It tells us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are in him. We are chosen in him. We are predestined and adopted in him. We have redemption, redemption in him. All things in heaven and on earth are united in him. We have an inheritance in him. We believed in him. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit in him. Take away him, you lose all those things, and there's nothing left. So as we celebrate the incarnation, we're celebrating two things. We're celebrating that this was a birth unlike any other birth in history. But we're also celebrating that this was a birth just like every other birth in history. We celebrate that this baby was fully God, unlike any other person that's ever been born. And yet we celebrate that he was also fully human, just like every other baby that was ever born. We celebrate that he's like us, and also that he's completely unlike us. And it's it's comforting. Why is this important for, for everyday life? Well, it's comforting and incredible to know that God became like us. That he would be willing to enter into our world, enter into our experience and our suffering, our pain, our weakness, our temptation. Because Jesus did that, because he really is like us, it means we can turn to him. We can go to him and know that he understands. And it means that he can represent us fully before the Father because he is us. He is human. But thankfully, he's not only human. Thankfully, he's also not like us. Jesus was also God, which was absolutely necessary for him to redeem us, to pay for our sin. Only God has pockets deep enough to pay for the penalty of sin. So thank God that Jesus was like us, that he can understand us, but thank God that he was also not like us, never sinning, and therefore able to pay the price of sin. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the wonderful mystery that you've revealed in Christ Jesus. Help us to embrace and enjoy that mystery, to help others into it, to see that it's not irrational or, or unreasonable, it makes perfect sense of everything that we see of you, that we experience of life, and it goes far beyond what we can imagine. Thank you, Lord, that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are ours in you. Thank you that we're chosen in you. Thank you that we're predestined to adoption in you. Thank you that we have redemption in you and for the hope that all things in heaven and earth will be united in you. Thank you that we have an inheritance in you. And thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit as the seal of that inheritance in you. We love you, Lord. We celebrate you in this season and may all of our Christmas celebration, all of our Advent joy and expectation and hope be in you